The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... The Important Modern Role of Residential Schools for the Blind and Ski for Light International is in its 40s and going strong. Welcome to ACB Reports for April 2018. Dr. Sharon Sachs is superintendent of the California State School for the Blind. During the annual conference of the American Council of the Blind last July, Dr. Sachs discussed the important role that residential schools for the blind can and should play in the education of students who are blind. I will not bore you because I'm going to talk very fast and give you a synopsis of what's happening with schools for the blind throughout the country, a national perspective of education, IDEA, and what ACB can do for education field. I represent the Council of Schools for the Blind. I'm one of the board members. And I will tell you that schools for the blind throughout the country are doing well. However, they are serving a more complex and diverse group of students who are blind, visually impaired, deafblind, and students who have multiple disabilities. Those schools who are doing well have great outreach programs along with students who are enrolled at their schools. So, stu so schools who are providing short course programs, summer academies, weekend workshops, parent workshops, reaching out to local school districts and being a resource for their states are in doing incredibly well and reinventing themselves as um, resources throughout the whole country. Um, schools for the Blind have a challenge as well as schools and programs for students who are visually impaired throughout the country. We face huge shortages in attracting teachers to serve students with visual impairments. I encourage all of you to work with young adults who are in high school who are interested in going into the field of education to really focus on working with kids who are blind and visually impaired. At my school alone, right now, we have four openings, four openings for teachers. We are looking for people, and I know this is true of other schools for the blind, who have certification to work with students who are blind or visually impaired. We need orientation mobility instructors who are certified. We need assistive technology specialists who are certified as teachers for students with visual impairments. In California, you have to be certified to be a teacher. The other thing that schools for the blind face, and it's a sort of a national issue, is there is a huge trend toward placing all students in inclusive environments. And I'm not saying that inclusive environments are a bad thing. 
It depends on the individual needs of the student. And we need to go back to what IDEA says. It says that all students who have disabilities are entitled to a continuum of services from most restrictive to least restrictive. And for some students, a least restrictive environment might be a specialized school for the blind for a short period of time. We tell parents that when, we, that when they send kids to our school that we don't want kids to be at CSB for a long period of time. We want them there, get the schools, skills they need, and send them back to their LEA. We are partners with a local education agency. And I would say that that's a trend throughout the country. So helping special education administrators understand that we are partners, that we are, that inclusion may be a more segregated environment or a more restricted environment for a student for a shorter period of time. We also need to help administrators understand that what we do is very unique, that we're not just tutoring kids, but we are providing an extensive curriculum, the expanded core curriculum, that involves nine areas of instruction and that student IEP should include all nine areas of instruction. And if that can't be done during the school year, then it can be done during summer or it can be done during short courses. Another area that we face nationally is that there is a huge trend um, toward, of course, academic success and achievement. And so there is a great emphasis on state testing and progress monitoring. Not all of those tests are completely accessible, and so it makes it difficult because students don't have the skills, don't have the materials to access those tests. Now, we have made great strides with SBAC, which is Smarter Balance, and other testing agencies However, we have a ways to go. Progress monitoring assessments are not always as accessible, and so our students don't have an equal playing field. In terms of IDEA, I'd like to share that the IEDEA has not been reauthorized, and I spoke with Mark Reichert last week about this. However, there is some movement in terms of some of our national efforts. I will tell you that the Cogswell-Macy Act is slowly moving forward, and it is bipartisan, which is really exciting. There is a House bill, and uh, there are two sponsors in the House, and that we're looking toward um, sponsors in the Senate. This bill will... will allow us to talk about and, and really validate areas of the expanded core curriculum for students who are blind or visually impaired. It will legitimize what we do with kids in terms of ensuring that what students get in a school program, not only academics, but preparing students for life, that students have opportunities for careers, that they have opportunities for independent travel, that they have opportunities for learning independent living skills, that they are able to access technology, 
that they are users of, and strong users of literacy, that we use assessments to monitor student progress in terms of um, functional vision assessments and learning media assessments. That's what Cosmo Macy is going to allow us to do. So we really need, as a country, to pass this legislation. A couple weeks ago, I'd say a month ago, a letter came out by the Secretary of the Office of Special Education Programs. And I think that um, it really is causing a bit of confusion among special education administrators across the country. The letter really tried to define or expand who is eligible for services if you are a student who is blind or visually impaired. And the letter talked about students who have binocular vision impairments or students who have convergence disorders. Now, this is not something necessarily that teachers, students with visual impairments, are trained to work on. Generally, those students are, are served by vision therapists or optometrists who have that specialization. However, we are seeing a greater number of students who have cerebral visual impairment in our roles. And so the role of the teacher of the visually impaired is being expanded on a national level to really look at how cerebral visual impairment or binocular visual impairment affects a student's learning. And that's what we look at. If a visual impairment is severe enough to impact a student's learning, then the student is eligible for services. And so that's what we need to look at. However, I believe this letter may cause some legal issues within school districts in the long run. Mark may disagree with me. I will tell you that um, AFB has written an excellent letter of response to the secretary or the acting secretary of the Office of Special Education Programs. It's really difficult to determine what's going to happen in the new um, administration and our new Secretary of Education in terms of her willingness to support teacher preparation programs, and many of our teacher preparation programs are really come about by grants from the Office of Special Education Programs to support people to go into teacher education to serve students who are blind or visually impaired. So it's really hard to say how that's going to impact the future of our programs. The one thing is clear, we need more teachers. The other thing that's clear is that we need more leaders to serve as administrators at schools for the blind. There are a great number of administrators who will be retiring or who have retired, and my fear is, is that we don't have the leadership to bring on new personnel. At my school, I just hired, or in the last two years, I've hired three new program administrators. And another one will be retiring at the end of this year. So that's a whole new group of administrators, plus finding people who have skills 
to be leaders, to educate staff, to lead staff, to make schools for the blind strong and to continue to be strong. We don't want them to be swallowed up. So what does this mean for ACB? A couple things. I encourage all of you to support families in helping them understand what their roles and responsibilities are as families. That they have the right to a continuum of services for their students. Not just one option, but many different options. They have a right to very comprehensive IEP and ITP, Individual Transition Plan, in programs. I encourage you to be involved with your LEA. I have a wonderful community advisory committee, and I have representatives, strong representation from CCB on my community advisory board. So I encourage all of you to do that. I encourage you to nurture new leaders in the field of blindness and visual impairment, especially blind leaders. Do you know that I am the only blind female superintendent of all schools for the blind in the United States? There, so I encourage you, find those young, energetic, competent, people to go into education and to become leaders, to become administrators. It's not an easy job, but it is the best job I have had in my whole entire career as an educator. I encourage you to work toward looking at developing, along with other organizations like the American Foundation for the Blind, Updating a policy guidance paper on educating students who are blind, visually impaired, deafblind, including students with multiple disabilities. I encourage you to look at a national perspective and look at how we can work with the National Association of Special Education Administrators or school administrators throughout the country and develop some guidelines, some new guidelines, to help them provide quality services to blind and visually impaired kids throughout this country. We're at a crossroads, I believe. I believe we need to be strong, we need to be solid, we need to support our specialized schools so they continue to have a place in the continuum of services. We need to support teachers in public school programs, making sure that they are able to provide quality education programs. One thing I just forgot, and I think it's important for you to all know about, that in California, and I believe this is a trend possibly nationally, that Orientation mobility instructors are not being allowed to serve kids after school hours or to serve them off campus. So how on earth are we able to make students or help students to become independent? You can't do it on a school campus. It's not possible. 
You have to put them out in the environment. And I'm sure it involves some lawyer who said this is a risk. But you know what? For blind people, life is an adventure and it is a risk. And we need to make sure as a community that, these, that we give our students every opportunity, every opportunity to reach their highest potential. That is what I believe. That is what I aspire to as a school leader. I've saved maybe a couple minutes for questions. Mitch Pomerantz, when and if, or maybe it should be if and when, IDEA gets reauthorized, we were just approached by Joe Xavier, who you know, and Joe posed a question to the members of the Blind Advisory Committee. He said, if you had a recommendation to make with regard to reauthorization of IDEA, what would it be? And what I've indicated to Joe is that the definition of least restrictive environment needs to be expanded. And I was reminded by a special education teacher, a VI teacher in California who serves on the committee, who said Phil Hatlin mentioned most appropriate education. In some way, somehow, we have to find a way to make that LRE definition such that there is no question, there is no ambiguity that that definition also includes the placement of blind or visually impaired kids in residential schools for however long it takes for them to learn the blindness skills that they're not learning in most of our, our local school districts. I completely agree, 100%. I have to tell you, we just finished six summer academies in three weeks. We had 75 kids from LEAs on our campus. And it gave them an opportunity to just be kids. We had a computer science camp. We had assistive technology and sports camps. We had let's get active. We had ready, set, go, which was living skills and mobility. And a fine arts academy. And the kids loved it. They loved it. To me, that is least restrictive when they can just move about on their own and the expectation is you're going to do it and you're going to do it on your own. I cannot tell you how many kids, younger kids, came and could not do things as simply as brush their teeth because their parents were doing it for them. Okay? So, parents need to be educated. Families need to be brought along. I totally agree. LRE, for a blind kid, the most appropriate placement may be a specialized school for the blind. And it may be for a short period of time, or it may be for a longer period of time. Do you know that the greatest number of kids we're getting at our school are all junior high and high school kids who should be in mainstream programs, but there are no resource rooms for blind or visually impaired kids. So they come to CSB, and they spend half of their school day at our local junior high and high schools. And if there would be a resource room for blind or visually impaired kids in their LEA, then there wouldn't be that need. 
but I'm glad there is a need because my school is thriving. What I'm saying, it needs to be a partnership, and yes, we do need to expand that definition. And we need to include all the areas of the expanded core curriculum to legitimize what we do. That was Dr. Sharon Sachs, superintendent of the California State School for the Blind in Fremont, California. You can listen to ACB Reports, the ACB Braille Forum, and the eForum by phone. Just dial 605-475-8154. That's 605-475-8154. Want to enjoy ACB Radio but have no computer? It's all there for you by phone. Call 605-475-8130. That's 605-475-8130. The long distance charges and minute usage of your calling plan will apply. Ski for Light International has enabled people who are blind to learn and enjoy cross-country skiing for over 40 years. Judy Dixon of Arlington, Virginia is the organization's secretary. During a presentation at the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind last summer, she described Ski for Light and talked about what participating in the organization has meant to her. How many folks in this room have attended a Ski for Light event? Wow. <laughs> that is great. Ski for Light has been going for 42 years in the United States. The primary goal of Ski for Light is to teach blind, visually impaired, and mobility impaired persons how to cross-country ski. And if you already know how to cross-country ski, it's a chance to get even better. A typical week at Ski for Light will have about 100 blind and visually impaired folks, a few mobility impaired skiers, and 100 plus sighted guides. The program was founded in Norway in 1964 and was brought to the U.S. in 1975. My first Ski for Light was in 1977, and I have not missed an event since. I was a very young child. <laughs> Actually, Ski for Light is for adults 18 and over. It's held in a different place each year. And in January 2018, it will be right here at the Nugget Resort. It's kind of hard to imagine Ski for Light in this hotel, but somehow we're going to be able to do it. Uh, we'll be skiing at the Tahoe Donner Ski Area in Truckee. It's a world-class cross-country skiing venue. Cross-country skiing is different from downhill skiing. And downhill skiing, you just kind of... Pray. <laughs> Cross-country skis are much longer and skinnier and lighter. The boots are not so terribly different from running shoes, except they have little things on the front end to attach the boot to your skis. But it's, all the equipment is lighter and more comfortable. And cross-country skiing is a great sport for blind folks because cross-country skiing the blind skier makes a lot of his or her own decisions about how to ski, how fast to ski, um, how, to, how much you want to slow down, when you want to slow down. Oh, my God, I'm going too fast. And you can make those kinds of decisions yourself. A blind skier skis in a set of tracks 
that's kind of grooves in the snow, flattened out places. And your skis sort of stay in most of the time. And each blind skier is paired with a sighted guide. And the sighted guy says things like, okay, okay, you're going to find now straight ahead, straight, uh, curving a little to the right, starting down, down, okay, hills leveling out now, things like that. Look out for the tree, yes. <laughs> Skiing is a really fun, and a lot of people say, I don't think I want to cross-country ski because I really don't like being cold. But the cool thing about cross-country skiing is you generate plenty of body heat. So you are a toasty worm out there while cross-country. And it's so nice to be outside in the winter and actually be warm and be able to enjoy it and dress lightly and move around. In addition to skiing, we have a lot of other activities. There are special interest sessions that people from within the community present on topics that they're knowledgeable about. There's a silent auction. There's evening activities. Lots and lots of things to do throughout the week. The cost for double occupancy is $950, which includes room, all meals, transportation to and from the ski area, to and from the airport, and all activities. First-time participants get free rental of skis, boots, and poles. And first- and second-time participants are eligible for partial stipends, based on financial need. Applications are available online uh, as of the 15th, which is just a few days from now, on the Ski for Light website, which is www.sflskiforlight.org. www.sfl.org. And the application deadline is November 1st, but if you get it in sooner, you'll find out sooner if you're accepted and may be able to get a better airfare, because we all know how high those airfares were to get here. Um, to learn more about Ski for Light, tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening, there will be a Ski for Light reception in Pavilion A at 545. And several veterans, I guess we have quite a lot of veterans, Ski for Light folks, will be there to tell you about what a great event it is and encourage you to consider applying, and you can learn more about Ski for Light. It's a great opportunity. It's, as Sharon said, life is an adventure and take a risk, and Ski for Light certainly embodies the idea of taking an adventure and taking a risk. One thing I personally appreciate about Ski for Light, skiing is fun, but the people are amazing. There is nothing else that I do in my life where I am around 250 truly interesting, involved people. The sighted people are fabulous. The blind people are fabulous. It's a great event. I encourage all of you to consider Ski for Light next winter. Thank you. That was Judy Dixon, the secretary of Ski for Light International. Check the organization's website for information about upcoming Ski for Light events. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.